This is our fourth grab bag edition of Mike's Notes. These are things that caught my eye in podcasts this last month. Ready? During the College Bowl Championship Series, there was much talk about Nick Saban's record against his former assistant coaches. Some people thought that he had their number, but I think the reason is different than that. This clip is from the Wharton Moneyball Show. The first part is Eric Bradlow and Steve Godfrey, and the second is Cade Massey and Bradlow. So let me ask you a question. You know, there was one of those stats that's sitting out there now, which is that okay. Nick Saban is 11-0 and against former assistants. 11 and 0. Is that worth anything? I mean, you know, is that no. uh, nothing? Okay, good. Shane Jensen's nodding. Yes, he agrees with you. Yeah. Um, why is that worth yeah. nothing? Uh, let's break it down. I mean, you break it down really fast. They, they, one, they include Derek Dooley in there, which is, I mean, he was a special teams coordinator and he never ran a competent program. Um, that was a train wreck of a situation. It's not a comparable stat, especially when you're looking at what Kirby Smart has done in Georgia. Um, so let's throw those games out. Um, I'm trying to think. Danto- I mean, they creamed Antonio, right? Um, yep. In Michigan State, that was just a that was a talent issue more than anything else. Michigan State also, I'd covered their previous game that year, and they were really, really banged up. Um, these are all situ- it's situational. It's subjective. I'm not the stats guy necessarily on our podcast. That's Bill Connolly, who literally invented an analytics system. I'm just the I'm just the dumb reporter who made a C in business calculus, but. When you look at a stat like that, it's fun, and it's fun to create that kind of narrative, and I get it. But you have to look at these games and these matchups individually because the idea that this Georgia team is comparable to the Michigan State or Tennessee or even, look, Florida was a dumpster fire when, when Will Muschamp took over. So, yeah, he was going to take losses against that against an Alabama program that was running perfectly at the time. There's a good narrative for you that, that – that, that sells sell stories, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would own his assistance in that way. You got you got to believe relative to somebody who doesn't know the system, a former coach has to have an advantage. Right. Well, there has to be some point. I mean, we we might agree it's not yet. Although eleven and zero is still eleven and zero. At some point, we'd have to look at how much, if you'd like, what's the expected number of wins, which might be ten point seven, and therefore yeah, eleven you, and zero exactly. is not that impressive. But also, what's the mechanism? I mean, why would that why would that be? The, the prior would be so so much stronger in the other direction. Why would a, a coach have an advantage over a former assistant relative to the former assistant having an advantage playing against a system he knew for years? That's that's certainly fair. So I like how the Wharton Moneyball team addresses these ideas, how they look at media narratives and dissect them and figure out what the numbers mean. 11-0 sounds impressive, and it is good, But I think I know why. It's the same reason that no Apple executive has made the next great consumer electronic. Alabama and Apple are both market leaders, and each coach or executive fills a role within their teams. However, when people leave Alabama or Apple, they step out and they step down. Former Apple executive and one of the fathers of the iPod, Tony Fidel, had the most success, leaving Apple to found Nest, maker of the smart home thermostat, which he sold to Google. Alabama coaches don't have the same advantage as Apple execs who can depart for an infinite universe of opportunities. Football coaches have 129 options, 130 minus the one for Alabama, and most of those jobs don't open each year. Of the ones that do, they're not good options, hence why there's an opening. 
If football outcomes were an equation, it would be something like coaching prowess plus player skills times execution. Upset victories are the result of the favored team not planning well, not training well, or not executing well. In business, the equation is different because the game changes. I really liked what Brian Arthur wrote about it. He calls it the casino of technology. These are his words. Quote, Not poker where the game is static and the players vie for a succession of pots. It is casino gambling, where part of the game is to choose which games to play, as well as playing them with skill. We can imagine the top figures in high tech, the Gateses, the Gerstners, and Groves of their industries, as milling in a large casino. Over at this table, a game is starting called Multimedia. Over at that one, a game called Web Services. In the corner is Electronic Banking. There are many such tables. You sit at one. How much do you play, you ask? Three billion, the crouper replies. Who will be playing? We don't know until they show up. What are the rules? Those will emerge as the game unfolds. What are my odds of winning? We can't say. Do you still want to play? High-tech pursuit at this level is not for the timid. In fact, the art of playing the tables in the casino of technology is primarily a psychological one. What counts to some degree, but only to some degree, is technical expertise, deep pockets, will, and courage. Above all, the rewards go to the players who are first to make sense of the new games looming out of the technological fog, to see their shape, to cognize them. Bill Gates is not so much a wizard of technology as a wizard of precognition, of discerning the shape of the next game, end quote. Business is wide open. Football is closed tight. Not until a former assistant has time to catch up like Kirby Smart at Georgia almost did will Nick Saban lose. 11-0 sounds really good, but I think there's a deeper story behind all that. Another football figure that caught my eye was on GM Street when Tate Frazier listed the cases for why the Eagles can win a game in the playoffs despite losing their talented quarterback to injury. Here's what he said to the audience and co-host Mike Lombardi. We're in Philadelphia this weekend. The defending NFC champs, the Atlanta Falcons, are going up to Philadelphia. They are favored uh, as a three-point spread for the Falcons this weekend, um, which, you know, there's some things to be said about that. I will tell you this. Every game that the Eagles have played at home, and they were a dog, an underdog at home in the playoffs. Three times it's happened in history. They've won every single game. The the last time it happened, I think, was uh, 2001 with McNabb. so that's one thing if you're an Eagles fan to be excited about. The last time was 2001? Like Nick Sabian being undefeated against his assistants, this is another all-sizzle, no-stake statistic. Good decisions rely on relevant reference classes and make adjustments based on your inside knowledge. Michael Mobison wrote about this in his book, Think Twice. This is what he wrote, quote, Amos Tversky, a psychologist who had a long collaboration with Danny Kahneman, published a multi-step process to help you use the outside view, end quote. So this is getting the essence, getting the figures you want to go off of whether 3-0 is a good figure or not. This is Mobison again. Quote, step one, select a reference class. Find a group of situations or a reference class that is broad enough to be statistically significant, but narrow enough to be useful in analyzing the decision that you face. The task is generally as much art as science and is certainly trickier for problems that few people have dealt with. But for decisions that are common, even if they are not common to you, identifying a reference class is straightforward. Mind the details. End quote. 
So Mobus in here is almost speaking directly to people who use statistics like 11 and 0 or statistics like 3 and 0. He wants us to find things that are significant. That's not enough of a sample size to say that there's been three games this has happened and the last one was in 2001. Frazier selects the wrong reference class. Rather than sort by team, the Eagles, he should have sorted by something else, some other current statistic where there's enough data where we can say, oh, there's a reason for this, there's a mechanism, rather than something that sounds good on a podcast. My third football observation, for this episode at least, came from Neil Payne at 538, and he was also on the Wharton Moneyball podcast to talk about he became number one in a 538 betting pool. To my ears, it sounded like Payne was or is going to run a super forecasting type of experiment. He's collected a large sample size and set them loose. Afterward, he'll try to figure out why some people were better predictors of football games than others. Ironically, Payne is one of the best predictors. Unlike Tate Frazier, who we just touched on, Payne uses the Las Vegas betting line as a base rate and makes small adjustments from there. This wisdom of crowds works better with sufficient size, diverse ideas, and people unmoored from biases like the anchoring effect. Payne is in first place in part because of good decision making, but also because of luck. Here he explains. I gotta say, luck has played a role, especially with this number one ranking uh, the past couple weeks. I forgot to make a pick. Let me, let me look this up. It was, it was for one of the playoff games. I just straight up, for, it was Tennessee at Kansas City. I straight up forgot to make a pick. Uh, Casey, of course, was favored at home. I would have put them down for, you know, whatever the, 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 the line, number right? would have been. Yeah, based on the line or, or something close to it. I forgot to make a pick. That means that you don't gain any points, but you don't lose any points <laughs> in the case of an upset. And lo and behold, Tennessee won. I liked Payne's whole process of how he's thinking about this. And the norm for a sports betting pool is to make weekly bets, but Payne has advanced up the rankings in part because he failed to make a bet. Warren Buffett often says that successful investing is like waiting for the right pitch with no called strikes, and that's what Payne accidentally did. I've thought a lot about this as it relates to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in the last six months. It's such an interesting field, and certain days I feel euphoric about it, and other days I'm pessimistic. And I often come back to the Warren Buffett quote that I don't need to swing at the pitch we call Bitcoin, but I can let it go by and wait for something else. Hearing Payne's fortunate luck and the betting pool reinforce this idea. In addition to all these podcasts about football since the end of the season is near, were a couple of really interesting comments about hockey. We should remember that data isn't a silver bullet. It doesn't matter if it's big data, clean data, location data, or tracking data. Data is the raw material that enters a factory which manufactures human behavior. Data needs value added to be valuable. When someone finds something interesting, it means getting people to take action. And this isn't easy. This podcast is recorded in January 2018, when New Year's resolutions are still fresh. But many will fade. Why? Thanks to the internet, a successful do more of this or less of that program is only a Google search away. There's free options and expensive ones. There's cyberspace and meat space. There's local and around the world. The problem comes with getting humans to act. 
This was the case for the Pittsburgh Pirates, too, when they embraced analytics in the early 2010s. The Pirates staff was trying to do new things, and because they were new, no one knew if they would work. In his book Big Data Baseball, Travis Sawchick wrote, quote, Fox and Fitzgerald knew they might lose players if they just passed along numerical data. They had learned in their limited conversations with players in 2012 and in going over video with players that they absorbed visual materials amazingly fast and retained the information, end quote. So we have a situation of someone doing something new, of finding evidence in the data, but having trouble with getting players to adopt it. Some players, like pitcher A.J. Burnett, took even more persuading. The executives and managers of the team convinced him by being open to questions and debating and challenging conversations. Another thing that helped was seeing it. Buying in during spring training accelerated once players saw the heat maps of where their opponents hit the ball. This has also worked in the NHL. The question asker here in this clip is Warden Moneyball host Cade Massey, and the answerer is Neil Greenberg, talking about the Las Vegas expansion hockey team. Where do you put Vegas on the continuum in terms of analytic savvy? Are they are they are they leaders? Are they open? Are they skeptical? Well, um, I don't I, I don't know for sure, but I would say just based on uh, McPhee's time in Washington, they're probably open. Um, he he was definitely. Um, he, he definitely embraced analytics while he was here, um, and I and I know that they were they were they were, they were actually very good at um, utilizing analytics with video, and and that to me is is really where the rubber meets the road to be able to to integrate those two two parts of coaching uh, really lets you drill down into a teachable moment for the players. I mean, you never want to tell a player what his course he is, but you certainly want to be able to. To, to look at the numbers, try to find some problem areas, and then instruct the, and then go to the video so that you can have a, a teachable moment. So I would say from that aspect, they're probably pretty progressive. For some things, our human brains just do better if we see it. Something clicks. For Alden Brown, it was eating pizza in Tuscany. He told this to Brian Koppelman, quote, Off on the edge of this town was a gypsy guy that lived in a hut. He had a little wood fire oven and three little busted-up tables outside his place. You went there, and he made pizza. You didn't order it. It was whatever the heck he was making. He would put it down, and you would put down money, and he would take some money. There would be some wine, and that was it. The pizza was misshapen, and there was nothing on it but olive oil, shaved Parmesan cheese, and baby artichokes. It was transformative. And that one slice of pizza, I became culinarily awake." End quote. Analytics only works if people take action. You can have all the insights in the world, but if people don't do something about it, they're not going to be helpful. One thing that people prefer is seeing it. What makes analytics such a big deal is value. As Claude Hopkins wrote in the book Scientific Advertising, quote, Americans want bargains, not cheapness, end quote. Analytics is more like antique roadshow and less like the neighborhood garage sale. I think this is happening now for two reasons. First, we have the data. Rather than say, she's tall, she'd probably be good at basketball, we can say, she has so many points or rebounds per minute of play. In a previous episode of this podcast, we looked at how this is happening with traffic. The second reason is that athletes are converging to physical pinnacles. Speed and strength record setting are slowing down, and the dispersion of top finishers is narrowing. 
Stephen Jay Gould wrote that we are approaching our physical limits, and he called it a right wall. Human muscles can only generate so much force, and human bones can only handle so much. This means that fresh data and non-kinesthetic, though there's some good kinesthetic stuff too, can be really valuable. This clip is also part of Cade Massey's conversation with Neil Greenberg about playing hockey. Who in the NHL do you think are the leaders on the analytics front? Who, if we want to pull from Toronto, from... Toronto Maple Leafs, um, they they hired a GM out of uh, assistant GM out of the AHL who was uh, very progressive with analytics and turned that whole franchise around in the in the AHL. Mm-hmm. They they hired a bunch of bloggers from from the NHL blogosphere that were very into analytics. They they fully embrace it. It's it's why it's it's very public. Um, they probably have the largest analytics staff and the probably the best funded analytics staff in the NHL right now. How big is that exactly? Well, do you uh, know? I would say I know that there's at least five people there. Okay, just to give you a sense of context, the Yankees have like at least fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sure, but baseball, but but I would say the average the average for the NHL Hockey. may be one person. Right. Okay. Yeah, the media so, might be zero. Right, yeah. Right. And for a while there, the Leafs were like scooping up all the data journalists or bloggers around the, right. and shutting them down mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. So is it yeah. Kyle Dubas? Is that the way you say his name? Yeah. The assistant GM. Is he? Is, how long until somebody hires him away? Uh, I, I'd be shocked if Toronto let him go away. I mean, he, the, Toronto's the biggest NHL market, and it always it always surprised me that they weren't. You know, there's only so much you could do on the ice, but they had so much money. I was really surprised that they never leveraged that into off the ice analytics and data. But yep. it looks like they are now. This Wharton Moneyball podcast was released about the same time that news of John Gruden's 10-year, 100 million dollar contract with the Oakland Raiders came out. This brings up the question. Was the Raiders' spend valuable, or was it just expensive? In hockey, it appears that it's better to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on an analytics staff rather than more coaches or executives, or to pay those executives more to stick around. In basketball, Bill Simmons has wondered why there aren't more teams that invest in coaching. He said in a podcast with Richard Jefferson, quote, I'm always surprised that some owner hasn't given Chip England $20 million a year. Think about all the money they spend on players, coaches, and everything. This shooting coach has transformed all these different people. I would think that's worth at least as much as an all-star, end quote. The analytics have at least 15 analysts. The Toronto Maple Leafs have at least five. Where should your marginal dollar go? Where's the most value? The final thing that I heard this month and really enjoyed was Adam Carolla's conversation with Brian Koppelman. Here's a clip of Corolla talking to Koppelman, and this is from January 2018. I find that people hang on way too tight to their ideas or or their exclamations or their or whatever their views or whatever whatever they are. And and I think it's because they've invested too much of their themselves in their proclamations or their ideas. And and you should not be tied to your idea, your proclamation, or your thought, because once you tie yourself to it, then if it's wrong, you're wrong, and then by proxy, you're bad, or you're dumb, or you're whatever. You should always have this fluidity to go, well, this is what I thought, or this is what I said, but I now have changed my mind, or I agree with this person's idea. Corolla's talking about his identity footprint. Jason Zweig calls this identity protection cognition and warns, quote, 
If you are not judging the validity of ideas by long-term, objective, peer-reviewed evidence, then you are just protecting your own identity, and it's foolish." End quote. Corolla wants fluidity so he can adapt his views, while the more vigorous want to destroy them. In an episode of the A16Z podcast, Mark Andreessen said, quote, Naturally, as we go through life, we accrue beliefs about how the world works, beliefs about cause and effects, and beliefs about patterns that we've seen. I try as hard as I can to be ruthless as possible in shedding the old beliefs and leaving them behind. They are so rarely predictive of something new, end quote. In this episode of the podcast, we've talked about what do we believe and why. We tend to believe narratives like being 11-0 or 3-0. When we look at what the reason is behind those numbers, it may be a different mechanism than we realize. We've talked about using data and what a good reference class is and what a good reference class is not. We've talked about the value of a marginal dollar, whether you should pay someone who can do a little bit of work in this area or a lot of work in another area. And we've talked about how our identity can influence our decision. Whenever I write about reference classes or base rates, I'm always reminded of the Nassim Taleb quote, where he talks about having a day when we recognize the entrepreneur, because it's only the people that ignore the base rates in the reference classes, that try things that really stick around. Taleb points out that restaurants almost always fail, but in general, the whole is better when we have all of these lots of small experiments. That's an idea we're going to talk about in the next episode of Mike's Notes. Thanks for listening.